And yes, another Chewbacca Wookiee welcome to Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And what and what do I do? I, I'm Pam sitting in, in there laughing. Every week we go behind the lens and below the line with exclusive interviews, live call-in guests, sometimes in studio guests. But 24-7, you can find my interviews and reviews in print and online, behindthelensonline.net, and a multiplicity of other places. But every Monday, you can find me right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And once again, we have a very eclectic and interesting show today. We have a timely and topical film from a first-time writer-director. Will McFadden, uh, and he'll be talking about his film, Doubting Thomas, which premieres at the Dances with Films Festival tomorrow, June 12th. Will will join us at 1130. But before Will, at 1115 or 215, if you're on the East Coast, and if you're in Italy or Moscow, I don't know the times offhand, so I'm sorry, (laughs) because I know we have a lot of live listeners in Italy and in Moscow. So thank you all, our international audience, for tuning in. Michael Dunaway is with us in the first part of the show, writer, director, and actor, with his film, Six L.A. Love Stories, that you can see right now on DVD, digital, or VOD. Uh, Both films, interesting films. I I absolutely love Six Six L.A. Love Stories. Of course, I cracked up as I'm watching it, and in the first scene, uh, is a publicist friend of mine, Mitch Swan, who gets to play a pool boy in a pool, um, so drinking. So that was quite quite entertaining to see that. Uh, Doubting Thomas covers a really interesting subject matter. A couple give birth to their first child, a white couple, and their child is black. Uh, and many of you on social media may have seen the story that has been circulating around in the past couple of weeks uh, about twin sisters in uh, the British Isles, uh, where they are twins. However, one is white, one is black. And it opens up a whole discussion on recessive gene, but it also, particularly with this film, Doubting Thomas, will addresses a lot of racial issues, uh, a lot of contemporaneous thinking that's happening in the world today. So I can't wait to talk to him. And as with Michael and these incredible six love stories uh, that he tells us about in Six L.A. Love Stories. And I have to say his cast is absolutely amazing. And nobody outshines Beth Grant and Stephen Tobolowsky. I will tell you that right now. But before we get to our guest today, Incredibles 2 opens on Friday. Embargo lifted at 9 a.m. Pacific time this morning. And I'm here to tell you, Incredibles 2 is beyond incredible. It is fantastic. Um, the new technology, I mean, is has bumped up again uh, within the RenderMan uh, proprietary software that Disney has. Um, the realism that, with which we see snow, um, with reflection and refraction, which we really saw take a jump uh, with Pixar Disney's The Good Dinosaur, and then it expanded 
to even greater glory with Finding Dory. Well, now you can see another technological jump, which just helps fuel the visuals and make them even more fabulous uh, than what, well, definitely than what we saw in 2004 with the original Incredibles. But even just within the Disney Pixar canon, it is such a joy to see these the new technology come into play and really be used to enhance the storytelling in various capacities. Um, we have the Parr family is back, but we've got a lot of role reversal happening. Um, and actually, I think we're going to do let's let's do Holly Hunter's clip first from the press junket over the weekend. Um, Holly Hunter talked about the role reversal and the character reveal um, that we see on the character revelations that we see unfolding. Um, Violet steps up her game. Dash is coming into his own. Jack-Jack? Jack-Jack has 17 different powers. And let me tell you, director Brad Bird, he shows us all of them with incredible, incredible visuals. But let's hear what Holly had to say about the role reversals here with Elastigirl kind of taking the lead in being a superhero. Well, I didn't read a screenplay because there wasn't really one. That, <laughs> he's the screenplay. He was my walking encyclopedia. He, he has pages. <laughs> um, yeah, he was my instruction manual. That's, that's it right there. So, Brad, I mean, we were like, yeah, it was, it was a while before I truly, really, before I truly realized what I was d really going to get to do in the movie. And I was, you know, really thrilled. Um, but it, it was like a retroactive thrill uh -huh, yeah. because over a period of months before I started gleefully singing during our recording sessions about how great my part was. <laughs> um, but to me, it was just really fun. I mean, I, I don't think that this is a message movie at, at, at in any way. Um, I think it's purely like luck, luck of the draw, that this happens to be dovetailing with Me Too and Time's Up. And, but obviously, time is up, okay? It's <laughs> and, and I feel that way personally. And it happens to be, be serendipitously reflected in this particular movie. But at the same time, you know, it's, 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 revela it's character revelation, period. Everybody is having revelations, including Jack-Jack. I mean, all the characters are revelations to the audience and to themselves. Um, and so I'm no exception as Elastigirl. Even, right, the ra even there's a raccoon that goes on a hero's journey. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I feel like in some ways, uh, Violet's adolescent thing, her jag in this movie, The Rage, is there's adolescence that I feel from Mr. Incredible and also from Elastigirl, too. And, of course, Holly wanted to say a little bit more, but our moderator, Scott Mance, very keenly stopped her uh, because no spoilers allowed um, 
But she's absolutely right with the role reversals. Uh, with It is very serendipitous with the timing of the release. And you also heard Sarah Val piping in there. She voices Violet. And she made reference to a great raccoon scene. Now, I don't know if it, if it was stolen from Guardians of the Galaxy to have a raccoon. Um, but I can assure you that the scene with Jack-Jack and a raccoon is one of the funniest you will see on film this year. And it is so good. I really hope Brad or somebody at Pixar Disney actually does a short film about Jack-Jack and the raccoon because it is that funny. Um, But the visuals are so important in this film and something that that Brad really explored with his production designer, Ralph Eggleston in Incredibles 2, is the mid-century, the 50s, 60s look of the film. Uh, Classic film fans, immediately when they see this film, they will see designs that hearken back to Ross Hunter films. You, You fully expect to see Rock Hudson walking into the living room as the floor opens up and there's a pool underneath the living room floor. Um... Their part of the design looks exactly from a scene in Hitchcock's North by Northwest. It's just the attention to detail is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And as Sophia Bush even noted during the press conference, right down to the, uh, to the terrazzo floor pattern uh, in this house that the Parr family gets to stay in temporarily. It is, the details are so spectacular Again, the architectural design of Ralph Eggleston is phenomenal, as is his use of color. So I had to ask Brad Bird about working with Ralph and what Ralph brought to the table to really tighten up this design from the first Incredibles 14 years ago where they were on an island. Because we pick up, it's, it's a seamless pickup time-wise uh, with the story. So where Incredibles ended... This one picks up right after that. But as you'll see when you when you go to the theater this Friday, you know, the visual enhancements are exponentially more glorious than ever. So take a listen to what Brad had to tell me about working with Ralph Eggleston. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say it, guys. Incredibles is beyond incredible. This is an amazing, amazing film. And for me personally, it's better than the first one. So... Kudos, Brad. Thank you. Yay. Now, I want to ask you, Brad, um, everybody's talking about the visuals. The visuals are outstanding. But most particularly, I want to ask you about working with Ralph Eggleston, your production designer, and what you came up with for your visual palette in terms of celebrating that 50s and 60s architecture that we're so used to seeing, like in a Tab Hunter, Rock Hudson, or even Hitchcock's North by Northwest film, and the color palette of the muted colors and letting the vibrant neons pop for the superheroes? Uh, well, um, I agree with you that Ralph Eggleston is an amazing talent. Um, he, uh, uh, he came on to the first film when we were just having trouble with the size of, uh, with the size of it. And uh, he kind of came in and helped Lou Romano out, uh, um, just getting it done, because it was sort of beyond us at, at that point. Um, we were a smaller studio, and the film was larger than we were. So uh, 
Uh, but Ralph um, loves movies like most people at Pixar. He really loves um, films and he's always reading a new book and he has a thing to show you and he's kind of always um, kind of disgorging art and books and things that he found and sketches he's made and he's just kind of spewing them out in every direction all the time. And um, uh, the film really benefited from this fuel. But uh, he uh, thinks about color psychologically. Um, he thinks about it um, in terms of what's going to surprise people, what's going to... Um, and he's not afraid to make bold choices. We, uh, the house that they wound up in, um, uh, he... We were kind of working on it, and suddenly he came in one day, and we'd already put a lot of effort in another house, and we were under a lot of pressure because they took a year off of our schedule, and uh, uh, he said, okay, uh, so I have this idea for that uh, house, and, um, you know, it's, it's really going to screw things up uh, for everyone, including me, um, um, but I just, I have to say it, and, and here's the idea, you know, the house, the house should not work for them, it should be initially impressive, but then you get in there, and everything's wrong for a family, and, and there's just, you know, these things that are beautiful originally, the water things, they become like this problem, and, and it's, it's the wrong house for them, and there's no real place for the baby's room, and, and there's a fireplace in the baby's room for no reason, and, and you know, and, he, and everything he's saying, you know, I'm going, oh, that's going to ruin this, and that's going to ruin that, and, but he's totally right, and damn, why is he right? And, and so uh, I agreed to it, and it totally screwed up everything I had in the script in terms of we need to see this in the foreground so we can see that in the background. Suddenly, everything was a giant problem, and yet it was right because... The house needed to be impressive but wrong for the family because uh, they're not in a comfortable place yet. They're, they have to find their way there. And that was a way of making the surroundings um, storytelling, which is really what uh, good production design is. Who's next? Wait, what, didn't Ralph say, didn't he show um, that part uh, of the movie at some mid-century modern architecture and furniture show? And when the part where the, the nice mid-century couch falls into the water, all the furniture collectors gasped. Yeah, <laughs> that was made just for them. Yeah. I was very impressed by the detailing of the terrazzo floor. As a person who loves mid-century architecture, I noticed that. So see, even the cast is mesmerized by the production design. And a little bit of trivia for all of you. Yeah, anybody that watches the show, uh, watches our, the videos of the show uh, on YouTube or on BehindTheLensOnline.net or in China, we've got two outlets in China that show our, the video of our show, um, you'll see our mascot is Anger from Inside Out. And Ralph Eggleston was the production designer on Inside Out. So... That's one of the beautiful things about Pixar is you keep getting to revisit with these master craftsmen. Uh, and every time, they never cease to amaze and dazzle. Um, but let's see. I'm trying to think here. Which one should we try? Because Michael should be calling in momentarily. Um, let's, do, let's, let's go ahead with Sam Jackson. Sam Jackson, of course, was, as to be expected, a riot and went off on a tangent talking about family uh, after Scott Mance asked him as an opening question. You know, Incredibles kind of preceded the Marvel Cinematic Universe in terms of superheroes. Was there 
have you seen any kind of crossover from the Incredibles into the MCU and maybe the MCU now into Incredibles 2? Um, so Sam, needless to say, uh, had fun with his response and his analysis about family, MCU, and Incredibles. As I remember, that family kind of fell out in Infinity War, didn't they? <laughs> Civil War. Civil War. And, and, you know. It happens. And nobody called me to make them be good. You know, I noticed that also. I said, why am I not there quelling this fight? I did bring all these people into S.H.I.E.L.D. and now all of a sudden, I'm not there. So I don't know what you're talking about. I can't relate. Um, the genre has grown and has grown inside this kind of one place. Um, sure, there's that other company that makes movies that are like this. Some, a couple of them are good. Uh, but um, there's a real interesting kind of playbook sometimes that I look at when I watch all the movies. And um, it's like they have this secret sauce that... Sometimes I wonder, because I'm there and I'm looking at the directors, I go, so these guys did a TV show. Why are they doing this? Or this person does these serious dramas. Why is he doing this? But there's something that they, they know or they find that, you know, make it work. And the relationships among the people on the inside of those films always become very intimate and intricate. Um, and sometimes, like, the people that are really related, like Loki and Thor, they don't like each other. Uh, there's family discord and the people that don't know each other that are looking for that connection become tied together in a very interesting sort of way and you got your bratty brother and Iron Man and you got your you know kind of lug kind of special needs kid in Hulk <laughs> you know but and you got your sister who turns out to be Black Widow who's a real killer but heart of gold so all these things come together, and these people find a common a common goal, or they're all working toward the common good, uh, which brings them together in a very unique and, and, and interesting way. And Nick Fury seems to be the kind of... How did this turn into an Avengers press conference? <laughs> it didn't. I'm just saying that they don't let me work in all those movies for a reason. Because I really don't know what's going on, but I can pretend I do. <laughs> kind of like this one. I really don't know what's going on, but I know they need me, and I make the icy stuff, and I make things happen in another kind of way. But thank you for allowing me to do that, Brent. And yes, as Frozone in Incredibles 2, Samuel L. Jackson is pretty darn incredible. Well... Another aspect of Incredibles 2, we are waiting for uh, Michael Dunaway to call, trying to track down the publicist and find out where he is. Um, but in the meantime, something, another important part of Incredibles 2 is the score, and Michael Giacchino uh, does not disappoint. Um, he really finds this great blend of kind of a Mission Impossible meets James Bond. He scored the first Incredibles 14 years ago, and to have him come back with the same kind of, of musical thread, but up the ante along with the rest of the film. It's really a spectacular soundtrack. And 
I think next to The Good Dinosaur, one of my favorite soundtracks for a Disney Pixar film. Um, so please, you know, when you go see the film, make sure you pay attention to the uh, score as well. And all the classic film fans out there will be happy to know that Isabella Rossellini uh, is voicing a high-ranking female politician in the film. Uh, it's always nice when uh, our classic film friends uh, pop up for a whole new generation and a whole new audience. Well, we have a new cast member who took over for an existing cast member with Incredibles 2. Um, Huck Milner now voices Dash Parr. In the first film 14 years ago, Dash was voiced by Spencer Fox. Um, but as you can imagine, for, when 14 years pass and a little boy's voice changes. So we now have a new Dash in the form of Huck Milner. And I got to tell you, he was a scene stealer at the press conference the other day. Um, but here's what he had, because he wasn't even born when the first Incredibles came out. So he has a very unique perspective on his love of this of the original movie and auditioning for Incredibles 2 and the whole pre movie premiere experience because it's a first for him. So let's take a listen to what Huck had to, Huck had to say. Well, I saw the first movie at, when I was like five or something because um, <laughs> my... He was becoming a man. <laughs> my dad showed me it because he really loved the first one. And I really loved it too. And my favorite character was Dash. That's unexpected. And when um, when I got the audition, um, I I just I was watching the movie over and over again. And when my mom got sick of watching it, I used the audition as a excuse to watch it again. What was it like being at the premiere the other day with everyone that you had made the movie with, and especially because you were such a big fan of the first one? It was amazing and overwhelming because. Um, like, in the beginning, when I got out of the car, everyone's like, sign this, sign this. And I'm not used to that. And <laughs> then when I got inside, I I, um, I felt more welcome than I felt. And it was just really amazing to be there. And he does an incredible job of voicing Dash. Well, right now, we have somebody else who has done an incredible job of writing and directing and acting in a film. And that is Michael Dunaway. Welcome, Michael. Hello, thank you for having me. I am so thrilled to have you, and I am so in love with six LA love stories. And I got oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I got to tell you right off the bat, nothing tops Beth Grant and Stephen Tobolowsky. The two of what them, a couple of pros, right? Uh, I mean, and you lucked out and have them. This is your first directorial feature, and not only do you have Beth and Stephen. But Matthew Lillard, Carrie Preston, <laughs> both of whom I love and adore um, and have interviewed yeah. multiple times, Ashley Williams, who is one of the lifetime Hallmark stalwart ladies, as is Alicia Witt, I mean, Ross sure, Partridge, sure. and then you get Peter Bogdanovich showing up in a small role. This <laughs> is, your cast alone makes this worth 
whatever the rental fee is, whatever for VOD, <laughs> for digital download, it is your cast is amazing and your pairings of the couples is outstanding. That could not have been an easy job. Well, uh, it it was a little easier than you might expect because um, most of my cast, um, with the exception of Stephen Tobolowski and Peter Bogdanovich, who were more acquaintances of mine when we started this process, virtually all the rest of the cast were already friends of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm I'm like you. I'm aghast at all the talent in this cast and how fun it was to give them some good material and watch them play. But I'm also incredibly grateful to them for showing so much uh, so much confidence in me as a first time director and knowing that you know having having the respect for my artistic vision uh, that they had you know developed through years of knowing me. Mm-hmm. to uh, sort of take that leap and, and decide to be in the film. I agree. I think all the performances are, are, are just outstanding. I, I mean, as I watch them, I mean, everybody, it's this great dance. Matthew and Carrie, mm. talk about an emotional dance. The two of They'll rip your heart out, won't they? They really will. And, you know, and all of this, I have to tell you, what really, going beyond the performances, but what makes this work from an emotional standpoint with each one of the couples that you have in their various state of relationship is your DP, Ellie Schneider. Mm. Oh, she is a, she is going to be a big, big star in the world of cinematography. She's already incredibly successful, but I always joke with her that I want to make a couple of more movies with her before she gets so famous that I can't afford her anymore. I, um, she is not only a great cinematographer, she's a director in her own right. Mm-hmm. And so she has, she was, she was probably my closest collaborator of all in this, uh, in this project. And we've worked together on several other projects. I treasure her friendship and her, her incredible work. Um, and also again, t- to take the, um, for her to take, have the faith in my vision to take on the challenge, you know, we shot this movie in six days. Are you and kidding? For a DP, <laughs> right? Oh my God! So, yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. So, for her to take on that challenge and say, "Yeah, I think we can shoot the whole feature in six days," and and almost all, virtually all, on sticks, by the way, no handheld. Right. Um. So uh, she's just she's a very game she's a very game person, and she's up for anything, and and uh, does beautiful work, and uh, I just couldn't love Elle more. Well, I mean, number one, the lighting, you've got a natural lighting look, so it's very welcoming, and it's very consistent Mm. amongst your different locations, because you've got multiple locations Mm. here. But where you and Ellie really excel is with the visual design of the camera framing and going from Mm. wide and slowly moving in as couples get closer and you get a tighter mid-shot. And then you very judiciously, yeah. you'll have, especially like with Stephen and Beth, you'll have a close-up yeah. and a close-up, and you cut back and forth. And then as they start drifting apart, then the shot widens out. And you do this with every couple. Um, it's really, it's interesting watching Ross Partridge and Ashley Williams out at the pool. First, they're 
you know, 10 feet diagonally away from each other. She's got her back turned to him, and she looks over her shoulder <laughs> if she speaks. But then slowly they start coming closer together, and your camera moves in. This is inc- impeccable visual language. Impeccable, mm. Michael. Well, thank you. I just really, I mean, I, I just really owe a lot of that to Elle. And, you know, there are a lot of cinematographers. I hope this isn't too much inside baseball for your audience, but there are a lot of cinematographers, some cinematographers, that really know how to put together a pretty picture, but they're, re- they're so focused on the visual that they're not thinking about how the visual is telling the story. Right. And Elle is not that way. Elle's aesthetic is as good as anyone I've ever worked with, but because she's a director, too, she sees it in terms of how is this telling the story, just the kind of things that you're, that you're talking about. Well, and nothing is too inside baseball and behind the lens because the bulk of, <laughs> uh, truly, the bulk of our listeners, a lot of them are filmmakers. A lot of them are first-time filmmakers. Oh, that's great. We actually have a lot of Academy members that listen to the show, which just blows my oh, mind fantastic. every time one of them tells me, I heard the show, I saw the show, and they... and." It's not just they heard it or saw it. They will actually tell, relate back to me about a specific episode. So, yeah, yeah. you know, that, that's one thing I love. So it's why well, I love having filmmakers like yourself, you know, and go, going into detail about things like cinematography. Because without that, you wouldn't have the emotional oomph that this film has. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I... It's. Um, I, I wish that I could say it's my brilliance, but uh, I have to give <laughs> almost all of that credit to Elle. Elle just, she's a treasure, and any of your listeners who are filmmakers who are looking for a great, great DP for the next uh, film should look her up. <laughs> well, you know, well, now you also star in the film. You are part, the other half of the divorce couple with Alicia Witt, and, and a, you know, you've got a daughter, a daughter, that you're worrying about what school and you, let's face it, your character of Nick isn't too concerned about the school. Mom is much more concerned. <laughs> um, so, but how is that for you directing yourself, especially on a six day shoot? Do we have, does, sure, who li- sure. does Nick, does actor Nick listen well to director Nick or does director <laughs> Nick have problems with actor Nick? <laughs> Oh, well, it's really, um, it is, as anyone who's ever acted and directed at the same time will tell you, it's a huge, huge challenge. Um, I will say that uh, I'm no fool and that my co-writer, Chris White, and I adapted a scene um, that, um, where the character is not too far removed from my own personality and where uh, really the emotional heavy lifting of the scene, most of it is done by the other character and then i cast someone who's just one of my nearest and dearest friends who happens to be one of the most brilliant actors i know to play that part so um i was uh, i was trying to create a situation where i would be set up to not have to do a whole lot uh to, to earn a win there and uh sure enough you know she alicia i think maybe my favorite moment in the in the entire film is that little her little mini monologue that she gives mm-hmm. uh there around the around the table and it just it makes me emotional every time i watch it um because she's so nakedly honest in that scene and and really really shares her heart with us you know mm-hmm. and and it's just so it's so beautiful to see that on film anyway but then to see my dear friend do it 
for my film is just it's it's almost overwhelming. Uh, Alicia is just a such a such a such an amazing actor um, and such a dear friend, and, and I just loved loved being able to play with her. You know? Oh, I mean, she just yeah, she never ceases to amaze me. She's always a joy to watch, yeah. no matter in no matter what role. Um, but you know, it's that emotional gravitas that she can bring very easily and very quickly to a character. And I think yeah. that's one of the things that makes her such a favorite on for the Hallmark movies and the Lifetime movies yeah. um, is because, you've really- you know, she's one of those actors. She's one of those actors that you can actually see her thinking. Yeah. That's a skill that's really rare in an actor. And it's really underrated because it makes the performance feel lived in and not, um, and not put on, you know, with, with many actors, uh, you know, there's the old joke that, uh, uh, what the actor hears is, uh, line, 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 line. Okay. My turn. Line, 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 line. Okay. My turn. <laughs> Alicia's the opposite of that. Alicia is in that moment a hundred percent. And, uh, and the camera reads it, you know, the camera's, the camera's not dumb. The camera reads that truth that she brings to to every performance she does. Yeah, and I have to say that the dance that, that the two of you do, you know, in terms <laughs> of of emotion, that yeah. is that's my favorite coupling. Um, in terms of comedy, yeah. my favorite definitely Beth and Stephen. But then in terms of heavy hitting <laughs> drama, it's got to be Matthew and Carrie. I mean, you yeah. you yeah. Uh, you have such a great balance in this film of the emotional palette. Yeah, you know, th- yeah. Thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. It was. It's a challenge in a uh, in a film like this where there's six different storylines to make them feel all different enough, but also feel all the same enough. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I, I mean, I guess that each viewer will have to judge for him or herself whether we did that. I'm I'm proud of. I feel like each one definitely has a very different emotional tenor, even a different emotional tone, mm-hmm. but I feel like they all feel like they could and do exist in the same world, you know, and specifically talking about Matthew and Carrie, you know, Carrie and I have been friends since we were 13 years old. We grew up together and, uh, and uh, she's one of the most dear people. And we both grew up in Macon, Georgia, you know, and uh, have been friends for a very long time, almost 40 years. We've been friends. And, um, uh, I just think Carrie is the greatest actor on the planet, and I'm not saying that as an exaggeration. I'm I'm friends with Mark Ruffalo, and one night at a party, Mark was there and Carrie was there, and and I brought Carrie over and I said, Mark, you know you know what a big fan I am of your work and how much your work means to me, but I'm about to introduce you to the best actor I know. <laughs> <laughs> and he smiled and he said, Well, I have to meet this person, and it, and it was Carrie Preston. I, she is. Um, you know, in addition to being such a dear friend, she also is, she's really one of my artistic role models. Uh, I've never seen her be, be less than excellent in a performance, and yeah. I've been watching her perform since I was 13. Yeah, I mean, she just, she never ceases to amaze me. And Matthew, the way he tackles these heavier roles um, as he has yeah. matured in yeah. life, and he takes these on, and he does them, there's a, a great, there's a gravitas and a poignancy to what he brings. Yeah. And I, I, think that a lot of it also comes from him having stepped behind the camera directing sure sure that's how i first met matthew was through through his first feature uh fat kid uh, fat kid rules the world fat kid saves the world yeah yeah 
you know, what, what's funny about that Matthew in that role is that um, I had originally been talking to another actor about playing that role. Uh, another actor whose work, who's a friend and whose work I just think is fantastic. Uh, and, and this actor is just, is, is a very, very, very intense, um, a very sort of live wire kind of energy on set. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I thought that it would be really cool to have a real sense of danger in that scene. Um, but, but that that actor didn't work out, and at the same time, Matthew, who originally wasn't going to be available to be in the movie, did work out, right? And and so I had to think about the scene. Okay, now with Matthew's energy, how is this going to be different? And what I found was that Matthew's gentleness and kindness mm-hmm. um, and introspection really brought even more to the role than I think this other actor would have brought Mm -hmm. because then those dangerous moments, for instance, I'll give you an example. Am I going on too long about this? No, I I just, you can finish up this one and then we have, as an example, the the scene where he says, you know, you know what I was wondering? I was wondering if I could kill you. I just, with these hands, I was wondering if I could do it in the bathroom. Well, in my mind, in my mind, their, their faces were going to be really close together, and it was you were really going to be squirming in your seat going, holy crap, am I about to watch this guy strangle his wife, right? Mm-hmm. But then when Matthew played it, they were in different rooms, right? Mm-hmm. And he was saying it not to scare her. It was almost like he was scared himself no. that he had had this, like, can you believe I had this thought, like, that I would kill you with my hands? And it's so much richer a moment than I had envisioned it. And that's the gift, really, that all these actors gave me um, in each of their performances. We had a half-day rehearsal. Each couple, we had a half-day rehearsal mm-hmm. before the day that we shot. And in each one of those half-day rehearsals, every single one of those actors brought huge, huge um, uh, enrichments of their character in mm-hmm. things that I had not even thought of. And they showed me... They showed me what was in my own writing and Chris White's writing and the three original playwrights' writing, and um, I, I will I will never stop being grateful to to all of those people for 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 collaborating in such a deep and meaningful and and heartful way. Oh, well, Michael. Unfortunately, I have to say goodbye to you and bring Will McFadden on, <laughs> another first time filmmaker who is also directing himself in his first feature. Um, I hope you'll come back on the show. I could talk to you forever. Um, uh, I appreciate that. I'm available anytime. Uh, let me know. I will. Michael, thank you so much. And everybody, <laughs> six L.A. love stories, digital, VOD, DVD. Get it, see it. You're going to fall in love with it. Michael, thank you so much. You're the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. And now, the very patient, patient, Will McFadden is with us. Welcome, Will. Debbie, thank Uh, you so much. Oh, my God. Thank you for holding on. You know, Michael called in late, and I'm trying to make sure. I'm fine. No problem. I'm I'm so excited to be here. You don't even know. uh, I'm all right. Talk about a film as a feature directorial, writing and directorial debut. Oh, my God. You really tackled some subject matter here with Doubting Thomas. Yeah, we tried. Um, you know, it's it's about um, something very personal to me, and it's about relationships and trust and love and all of that, but it's also very much about uh, race in America mm-hmm. today, and there's a lot of intersection there. But, no, thank you for, for watching it and saying that. 
I mean, it just, you don't know what to expect. You're on tenor hooks as you watch this film um, because you're already getting a sense of who your character, Thomas, is um, and where he's veering to in his thought process. You do a great job of, of creating doubt for the viewer as to how he's going to take and accept this new baby of his who is black. And it's, it's, you really get the ball rolling very early on in the film. And by having, you know, the best friend who Jamie Hector is amazing playing Ron, um, and Sarah, he's but- incredible in this movie. And, oh. um, I'm so excited because he's, Actually, in a car on the way to uh, JFK right now. He's coming out for the premiere tomorrow night. And oh, means so much to me. That's yeah. fabulous. I that's can't right. Believe it. Tomorrow um, night at seven fifteen at Dance. He's coming out, and he's getting on a plane right after the, the screening. He's going to to catch a red eye to get to Miami to to shoot, and <laughs> I just, I can't even believe it. I'm so grateful to him uh, as I was already but uh, just to have him there is going to be incredible. So what was this process like for you Will from conceptualizing the story to writing it and what and did you always intend to have this as your feature directorial once you had the script in hand? It's a great question. I did not uh, <laughs> intend to direct it at all. Um, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be in it. Because it started, and this is why I'm so excited to talk to you and be excited for tomorrow. It started 11 years ago. Um, one of my best friends and I were on a basketball court, and he told me a story about his father, um, who happened to be a black man who was killed in police custody. And uh, my reaction to that story um, was one demanding answers, and he kind of had to gently explain to me that they didn't have much recourse. It was the dead black man's version versus the white cops. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the next day I saw him on a basketball court and I said, hey, what if this had happened? What if uh, that man had, um, you know, gotten someone pregnant and then there was a recessive gene thing happening and then that person passed for white and then it was uncovered later and what would they do? And we started just working on this story together and... Um, I told a friend of mine, Casey Morris, and um, she said, this is good. You guys should keep going. I want, it should be a movie. I want to produce it. And um, we, just, we just kept going, and we thought, what would this character do to find out more about what happened to this man? And, um, and we did that. We, we found – we got the police reports um, from the actual incident. Mm-hmm. I ended up speaking to one of the cops who picked up. His father, that was a whole journey in and of itself Wow! that I've been thinking back on. But, um, you know, we were working on it so long ago, and I remember Obama got elected and someone said to us, uh, it's a shame you guys couldn't get your movie done because it would have been so relevant, but, you know, now we're post-racial, and it's, it's not really going to matter anymore. Um, and here we are today. <laughs> and we all know what's happened since then. Yeah, I don't have to say it. You know, um, unfortunately, it's become, in many ways, it's unfortunate as to how uh, relevant it's become because the incident that started it, that was the seed for the story, um, wasn't a part of a greater phenomenon back then, mm-hmm. um, nor was it recorded um, and proliferated on 
social media and so on. So, um, yeah, it's just it's fascinating to us. Uh, you know, for for so long I've had people sending me things, um, telling me, "Oh man, you you got to get your movie out uh, faster. Um, you, you don't want to miss your window." And um, <laughs> you know, Jamie would always say, "It's going to come out at precisely the right time." And I just eventually learned to trust that, and um, here we are. And he's absolutely right. Um, you know, when did you decide that you were going to direct, and how did you start approaching this? Because I know, I mean, you've done acting, and of course I find it very ironic. You did an episode of Castle. Your co-star Sarah Butler did an episode of Castle. Um, you know, and here, right. and here you are now both in the same film. Um, so I'm curious how you went about the directorial aspect, once you decided you would be the one, you would be directing it, you know, sure. did well, your acting, did your acting question. work I mean, come into play? Was, did my acting work? Did your acting experience come into play with how you approach the directing process here? Oh God, yes. That was pretty much the entirety of it, Debbie. I mean, <laughs> that was what I relied upon and just having um, a language with the actors. Um, as far as all of the technical stuff, I was blessed to find uh, an incredibly experienced DP, Phil Parmet, and uh, Anthony O'Brien, who is the first AD. They were so professional and um, handled that end for me in a way that my directing the film, for me, casting and then a lot in editing and as far as working with the actors on set i would really choose to kind of let them come to me about it um, mm -hmm. i didn't want to be too hands-on there um, and what i found is they would bring so much more to it um, than i had even envisioned and if it wasn't right in line with what we were thinking it would help strengthen those ideas because it challenged it and we would reach some kind of compromise. But what, what was crazy is how passionate all of them were um, in, in the choices they were making. And it was just, it was so humbling to me to see what they had put into it. Um, I remember the first rehearsal, Melora Walters showed up. Um, I think before she even said hello, she was showing me. Um, she reached into her purse, and she had this envelope. She opened that, and she had another one. And she opened that, and she had this tiny, tiny little pocket of a thing that she pulled a photograph out of. Oh. And she had decided that that's where Kate keeps the picture of Rogers Campbell, mm -hmm. uh, the man uh, who, who um, is based on, on Joe's father. Yeah, the only, and, uh, the only that, picture. That kind of specificity. Wow. Sorry, go ahead. I said the only picture that she has kept. That's exactly right. Wow. That's exactly right. I mean, that, that really, that, that, that's, a dedicated actor, somebody that goes and digs that deep to develop their character to that level, to develop it on their own to that level. Because uh, that was such an amazing it, it touch is, and I was, in the film. I was just so grateful, and um, it, it was kind of overwhelming for me because I've been on the other side of that so much. Mm -hmm. you know, I've been in those casting rooms, but I've been waiting and doing my thing and leaving and giving it up to... Um, you know, whatever could happen. So, um, I, I mean, just the first day of, of auditions, I remember it was, I'll never forget it, just seeing the, um, the care and the, um, 
the passion that people were bringing to to these words that we had written in the story um, was incredible to me. So now I'm curious how you how you worked with your DP with Phil Parmet. I mean, Phil, he is you know he has a a wonderful resume. I mean, he did a segment of Grindhouse, Devil's Rejects, which I saw Rob Zombie movie. Um, he did TV series Switched at Birth, Royal Hearts for Hallmark. That's that's I think airing this month. Um, but I mean, he is such a he has such a diverse palette of what he can do. And what I found took particular note of are a lot of the camera angles that the two of you developed and were using from like the upper right corner of a room looking down, almost like a fly on the wall intruding on these moments or these experiences in life. And I'm curious how you went about developing um, the look that you wanted and that the framing and the dutching uh, that is implemented throughout the film. That's great how you put that, about how you're kind of looking into something. And if someone else has said that to me, how you're, you're kind of seeing things that you almost feel like you shouldn't be mm-hmm. allowed to see um, in these moments that we have. But, um, you know, a lot of it's out of necessity. A lot of it's uh, just his ingenuity and experience. Mm-hmm. And what was great uh, for me is if I had any kind of idea, it would be, you know, oh, can we do it this way? If he said no, I, I knew it couldn't be done. <laughs> I could trust that, so I'd leave him alone. I mean, Phil, I, I don't even know, you know, the first, um, I don't know, a uh, few days especially, I, I didn't even know um, if he even liked me at all. Um, he was just so into what he was doing and focused, and, you know, that that was great for me, but... Um, he, he, he's intense and he's also so specific and I really respect that because there was one, we were shooting the party scene and it was probably four in the morning and we were waiting for the shot and I'm leaning on a counter or something and Phil says, stop, hold everything, you know, and he comes up to where I am and he moves like literally one coaster, like a, a half an inch to the right. So it's leaning on another coaster on the thing and it was so minute and specific i thought he was messing with me um but he he knew exactly what he was doing so i was just very fortunate to have him there yeah i mean because uh, you know the camera angles that he that he chose and also a lot of it because you get this great sense of especially in will and sarah's house you get a lot this claustrophobic kind of feel at times the more embattled their relationship comes, the more doubts that Thomas has and starts mm-hmm. infusing. And you really feel that claustrophobic nature. And I know when you have a very when you have tighter spaces, it also makes it very difficult navigating logistically with your camera and your lighting equipment. So I'm guessing that some of that also played into some of the visual decisions which worked from an emotional storytelling standpoint. Well, they do work, and, you know, you're right about that because it's it's not easy, and you're trying to do the best with what you have and the space that you have. And, you know, there's, there's an urgency, urgency to it because I think even the particular scene you're talking about, you know, the sun was going down. We mm-hmm. had to hurry up. And, yeah, it was stressful. And, you know, it's a stressful situation that the characters are in. So if you're able to um, channel that, it can be kind of a great thing. So now, did you shot list or storyboard? What what was your 
your plan like for this film? My plan was to uh, beyond surviving an when I showed up on the set. <laughs> um, I had to eventually uh, stop thinking of myself as a writer and a director. At, at that point, um, for me, I was trusting uh, the, the assistant director and the DP and just taking part um, in, in the way that I could at the moment, which was primarily as an actor, because I was working um, with Larry Moss leading up to it, and he said one thing that's terrified me but also helped motivate me is, you know, if without a performance from, from you, there's really no movie. That's right. Um, so <laughs> uh, I, w- I was really focused on um, just doing my best as an actor and telling this story that we had come so far with uh, in, in the way that, that would serve it best you know, and do it, do it justice. I'm curious, how precious was writer Will with the words on the page? In terms of you know, because as you know, oh, that's actors, fun. Yeah, that's no, that's a good question. Actors want to improv or yeah, ad lib. I mean, yeah, we we did. Uh, I was very open to that, um, and then there were certain things where I wasn't. You know, you're you're fine with stuff until you're not. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, it, it would be a, a real disservice. I think, in my perspective, at least for this particular script, to just be closed off to that and I think some of our best stuff came from that you know the final uh, confrontation between Tom and Ronald what Jamie says about the look in his eyes and Mm -hmm. relates that to a look that he's experienced throughout his entire life that comes from him Mm -hmm. we wanted him to use what was going to be most powerful for him Mm -hmm. and um I'm really glad we did. Really glad we did. No, that um, scene is amazing. That's an amazing scene. scene. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I, um, there's there's plenty of scenes where um, we the actors would come to me because I'm there. I'm the writer, and I'm you know I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm there. So they're going to say I don't think he would say this. I don't get why he's saying this. And um, I, I actually love that part um, <laughs> because they they had really strong ideas about it. Um, and I, what was great was discovering for me that I had done my work to a point where I could articulate it and be, be super clear about how and why and, and help them and also learn from them. Mm-hmm. So that, that, to me, was kind of the greatest. So I'm, what do you think was the biggest hurdle, the biggest learning curve that you had in this process? You know... I would just say to keep going and to keep believing somehow that it could be a thing that is going to premiere on a big screen tomorrow night. <laughs> like that to me, it, it wouldn't have got done. Uh, I, I said to people, I'm glad I didn't know um, how hard it would be or how long it would take because I would have never tried to do it. <laughs> um, so I'm glad I didn't know. And, you know, there was a filmmaker Q&A I just did where some of the answers, I, I took pages to answer them. And I think one of the questions, it was similar to the one you just asked, you know, what finally got this done? It was just perseverance. It was one word, and I went on to the next question. I, I think um, for me it was choosing something that was personal, that 
affected me to the point where it broke my heart and I had to say something about it and make something with it. And if it hadn't been something like that, I don't think it would have ever been done. If it had been a horror movie, and maybe that's somebody's thing is to do a horror movie and that's going to make it uh, their thing. Mm -hmm. But for me, unless it was something um, that I was compelled to be doing and see through, I, I don't think it ever would have been done. Now, do you see yourself, now having gotten a taste of directing a feature film, writing a feature film script, do you see yourself moving, wanting to move more behind the camera? Or do you want to try and find a balance between directing and writing and acting? I want to find that balance. I really do. I mean, I love storytelling. And most of the acting I've done has been in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, um, I, I love to collaborate and be challenged and do work that means something to me. And I, I definitely am encouraged and <laughs> um, just unbelievably uh, inspired by the fact that we're going to get to um, show this movie to the however many people we can and... I absolutely want to keep going in all those respects because as an actor, so much is out of your control. Mm -hmm. You know, and I've, I've been lucky enough to have people challenge me to not rely on being picked for something or um, waiting for something or being part of someone else's project and, and ask myself, you know, what do I have to give or contribute? Uh, do I have something to say as, as an artist? And I've had people challenge me to do that. So... That's what I'm going to continue to try to do. So now, in terms of the screening tomorrow night, now, is this the West Coast premiere, or how many festivals have you been Yeah, I mean, it's the world premiere. <gasps> oh, my God. Oh, my <laughs> God. Yeah, that, uh, so I'm, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not many people have seen it. You've seen it, and just a few close personal friends. So Wow. Um, I'm pretty excited for tomorrow night. Yeah. Wow. That is, so the world premiere is It Dances with Films tomorrow night. Are you nervous? Correct, 7.15. Are you nervous? Um, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm terribly <laughs> nervous. I can, I can barely breathe sometimes, but I'm also really excited. So, I'm, you know, I'm used to balancing those two, you know. So now what, what do you hope people will see when they see this film tomorrow night? I hope that people might think about their own possible blind spots um, as far as their, their values and how they, they see the world and what might happen to these values and things they hold dear that they take as a matter of fact uh, when they're put in a situation that really challenges them uh, and puts them under the microscope that's personal. Um, because it's hard for parents or, um, you know, potential parents or have a kid on the way to see this film and not think, what would I do? Mm -hmm. You know, I trust my wife if she tells me I'm the only one who can be the father, but I'm sitting here looking at this baby that there's just no way mm -hmm. it could be mine based on um, what I'm seeing, what I know about science and how mm -hmm. things work. So, um I think uh, if it can make people 
start to take part in a dialogue that we think is very necessary mm-hmm. and difficult, um, then it'll be a success for us. I think people want a way to talk about these things and call. Um, but, you know, with our film, you know, I, I am a white male talking about this. And I think often, you know, um, white people feel like we're supposed to listen. And I think that's very true. I think that's a prerequisite for participating in this kind of conversation. But I think there also needs to be some engagement, and that comes with a risk of uh, revealing your own ignorance mm-hmm. at times. But that is how we, we grow. I think a lot of people um, might see the film and, and say, Tom, uh, it's not fair what, what happens to him. And, you know, he's just decimated, and it, it is not right. Um, but... I think uh, another thing Jamie said to me is, well, they're, they're missing it because Tom, he's about to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a, actually a beginning for him. So, um, yeah, I think if it, can, if it can lead to people questioning things and also engaging with one another um, in, in uh, an area that is often difficult to deal with but I think is quite necessary, mm-hmm. uh, that would be wonderful. Well, here's to a successful world premiere tomorrow night. Then everyone engages with the film, and then they engage with each other and open a discourse and dialogue after they see it. Job well done, Will. I can't wait to see what you do next. Debbie, thank you so much. You don't know how exciting this is for me to be talking about it. I just appreciate it. I am so thrilled to have you. Your publicist, Kim. Oh, this is my first one. So, I mean, this is like, you're not going to find anyone more excited or happier to be on, on your program. Well. I'm really honored. I appreciate it. Oh, my God. Your publicist can tell you how much I love the film. And she'll also tell you that if I thought your film sucked, I would tell you it sucked. And why. <laughs> So I hope so. <laughs> oh, have fun tomorrow night. That's the main thing. Enjoy. Have fun. You're only going to get your one world premiere for the very, very first time, Will. I, I promise. I promise. I will have fun. Oh, and I hope you'll come back on the show again in the future. I would love it. Fabulous. Well, I'm going to be checking in tomorrow to see how the uh, premiere went. So, um, okay, please do. Uh, fingers crossed. I know you. I know it will be very well received, and you'll be fabulous tomorrow night. Thank you so much, Debbie. Thank you, Will. Talk to you soon. Bye. Okay. Take care. And that was Will McFadden, writer, director and star of Downing Thomas. It is at Dances with Films in Los Angeles at the Man's Chinese Complex in Hollywood. Tomorrow night, 7.15, there are still tickets available as of an hour ago before we went live on air. Um, it really is. It is. It's an important film. It's a timely and topical film. And it's a well-done film. So that is all the time we have today. Next week, Okay, for all for our Moscow listeners, next week we have former Bolshoi ballerina Elisa Casanova, who has become she has now directed her first film, and she is going to be live on the show next week, f- talking her film Middle Ground. I can't wait for that, and Elaine Ballas is going to be with us, talking about 
her most recent film that she did with the legendary Marv Kaplan. And Marv, all the classic film fans out there, the TCM fans, Marv holds a very special place in all of our hearts. Um since his, it always did, and since his passing, even more so. And he graced TCM Film Festival several years. Uh, and I'm so, so thrilled I got to speak with him multiple times over the years. Um, so Elaine will be with us. Elisa will be with us. And maybe even one more guest. But until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>